The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Iesus, The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In the previous 11 episodes, we took an in-depth examination of the various types, shadows, and the substance, which were revealed by God through the book of Exodus. In doing so, we saw how God used the historical saga of Israel's entrance, bondage, and eventual deliverance from Egypt by Moses, parallels, and in fact foreshadows its substance 
depicting all God's people who have entered into bondage of sin and are delivered from their sin through grace by faith in the finished work and imputed righteousness of Jesus. In the last episode, we finished the book of Exodus and its record of God's dealings with his people Israel through God's deliverer, Moses, as he and God's people were encamped near God's mount, preparing to move into the wilderness. At this point, I will skip past the book of Leviticus, whose primary message is separation and sanctification. Leviticus reveals the infinite holiness and righteousness of God through various laws, ordinances, statutes, and codes of conduct. These laws and ordinances stand as God's schoolmaster for those who desire fellowship with Him to generate a sincere sense of conviction regarding our own inadequacy, inability, and unrighteousness. It is the vehicle which drives us ever forward towards repentance and reliance upon God's forgiveness and acceptance by grace through faith in the imputed righteousness given to us freely by Jesus the Messiah. Thus Leviticus is a gold mine in terms of better understanding the type and substance of propitiation. However, I will save that for another time. I will also be skipping the first four chapters of Numbers since they deal with the numbering of the tribes of Israel up to that point. Lastly, I will be skipping chapters 5 through 9 which give additional laws, ordinances, and statutes regarding various subjects. Again, none of the aforementioned material is omitted because the information is old or uninteresting in its type or substance. Rather, I would like to stay focused on the type of Moses, the Deliverer, who is the substance of Jesus, our perfect Deliverer. In reviewing the upcoming study of Moses, the Deliverer, as seen in the book of Numbers, one of the reoccurring themes seems to revolve around how Israel constantly is complaining about various predicaments she finds herself in. Like in times past in Numbers, we see time and time again how Israel, the type of God's people, despite being guided, protected, and loved by God as his distinctive people, voices their desire to return to Egypt and the creature comforts they remembered. Israel clearly had selective memories when it came to this because while they remembered the food and drink which was in abundance in Egypt, they apparently chose to forget how they had been in bitter bondage as slaves to the Egyptians who thought nothing of the death of a Hebrew man, woman, or child. This historical cycle, detailed in numbers, may also in substance stand as a reminder to God's people today. How often do we become prisoners of our past by ignoring the fact God has delivered us from Egypt by his strong hand via his deliverer, Jesus? Even though Jesus guides us, keeps us, protects us, provides for us, how oft do we complain to God, charge him foolishly, and desire through selective memory to return to the carnal aspects of Egypt, i.e. sin, while forgetting the bitter bondage which once enslaved us. In this case, we begin our episode with Numbers chapter 10, verse 33, which reads, 
Quote, and they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. Unquote. Here again, as in other verses, we find the reference to a three-day journey. Given our search for types and shadows, our attention should be drawn to the clear correlation to that sign fulfilled by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 40, Jesus designates his coming three days in the heart of the earth as a sign which fulfills and becomes the substance predicted by Jonah and so many other prophets. Quote, then, Certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." Second, we find that the Ark of the Covenant, which is the type of Jesus, which like Jesus contains the perfect and unbroken commandments of God, goes before them. Even so, like Israel, Jesus goes before all God's people who follow him. We also learn that the Ark, Jesus, goes before God's people in search of a resting place. Comparing the type to the substance, we may also see an axiomatic truth. Whenever and wherever we find those who closely follow and commit their path to Jesus, the ark, we find those who will, as a result, find rest. If the ark moved, God's people moved with it. If the ark stayed in one place, God's people stayed with it. Just so, wherever Jesus is, those who are God's people will be found. Because the ark, i.e. Jesus, is in their midst, both individually and as a body. God's people, who abide in a relationship with Jesus by faith, will also find rest. In Numbers chapter 11, we discover what happens when God's people become ungrateful and begin to despise the Lord who is among them. In verse 14, we learn that a mixed multitude began to lust for the meat and flesh to which they had become accustomed while in bondage in Egypt. From this revelation, we are reminded of two things. First, the term mixed multitude in the original language literally tells us that there was a group of people assembled together who had associated themselves with Israel. The inference is that either this group was a group who were Jews, but only in a very secular and generic sense, or there were a group who may or may not have been Jewish, but who chose to follow along with Israel for whatever reason. In either case, the hint is that this group did not have the same resolve and sincerity as that of God's people. Putting it in other terms, this group was far more inclined to carnality, rebellion, and sin than the core of Israel who themselves were far from perfect. In any case, this group had seen the same plagues visited by God upon the Egyptians. 
This group had seen Israel's deliverance through the Red Sea while the host of Egypt's army were drowned. The group had drunk water from a rock as well as sweet water from that which was at first bitter. This group had been led by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. All of this and more this group had witnessed the same as the rest of Israel. Now this group had been nourished by the manna from heaven on a daily basis. Despite all this, this group refused to have a heart of thankfulness and gratitude for all they had received. Instead, they chose to complain about Moses and God, remembering and longing for the meat and other food which they had eaten in slavery while in Egypt. Verse 6 of chapter 11 records the utter ingratitude of their mindset. Quote, But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. Unquote. How is it possible that anyone who has encountered and eaten the manna from heaven, which is the type of Jesus which by faith we partake to heal and fill our soul, could ever say that our soul has dried away? If anything, does not God quicken our soul and spirit by his power through his Holy Spirit given at the new birth? How is it possible that those who have partaken of this bread of heaven could say that this bread is nothing at all? How can anyone truly compare the riches of Christ to the supposed riches of this world? Having tasted daily the manna of heaven, should not the entire camp have been able to proclaim the same thing as did Paul in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3 verses 7 and 8? Quote, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yet doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, unquote. In the end, what this verse reveals is that like today, there are many who believe that they are Christians, i.e. God's people, because they live among and do the things that God's people do. It may be that they have said the sinner's prayer. They go to church. They have read the Bible. They pay tithes and other outward behaviors, which in some regards indicate that they have left Egypt. But like this group, despite God's goodness and mercy, their ultimate heart's desire is to return to Egypt. They miss the carnality and fleshly appetites which they were so freely able to satisfy. So in fact, while their feet may have left Egypt, their hearts, minds, and souls remain captive to Egypt because in this case they despise the Lord who desires to walk among them and satisfy them entirely. Since their heart's desire is to return to Egypt, God gives them the carnal flesh which they desire. In fact, God heaps up the very flesh which they desire all about them until they cannot contain the huge supply. As they consume the flesh, which they so carnally desired with all their heart, they are consumed by God's wrath, having despised his life-giving provision.
Ultimately, this episode presents us in type with a clear fork in the road which divides and separates those who sincerely and earnestly desire the things of God from those who partake in the things of God, but whose hearts are set on the things of this world. Verse 33 through 35 give us the key to understanding. Quote, and while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called the name of that place Kibrath-Hatava, because there they buried the people that lusted. And the people journeyed from Kibrath-Hatava unto Hazareth, and abode at Hazaroth. So first of all, there were sadly many people who knew of the Lord and saw firsthand his works and miracles who died because they despised the things of the Lord in favor of their lust of the things of Egypt. The end of the road for these was that they were buried in Kibrahatava, which means graves of lust. Secondly, for those who were content to satisfy themselves with the manna from heaven and did not despise the Lord among them, they lived and moved on to abide at Hazaroth. In this case, all we need to know is that Hazaroth means an enclosure or court. The word is frequently used to distinguish the area before the holy tabernacle and the temple. This is the first of several instances which stand as a test of principles for those who call themselves God's people. It must be remembered that Jesus clearly tells us the following in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Quote, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Unquote. This clarion call reminds us that God demands decisiveness when it comes to choosing what side of the fence we're on. Sitting on the fence is not an option. Each man's decision carries eternal consequences, and there is no court of higher appeal. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, we read, quote, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman, unquote. Here we have another verse which has created a great deal of debate and opinion. We know from our earlier study of Exodus chapter 2 that Moses married Zipporah, here in Numbers, the current translation makes reference to an Ethiopian woman who Moses had married. Now we could spend an entire episode dedicated to discussing the merits of the various theories, but in the end there is no definitive answer from the Bible as to which one is correct. The three basic theories to explain this verse boil down to this. 1. Moses was married twice. We have Zipporah, who possibly died sometime after Exodus chapter 18, verse 5, when Jethro returns with Zipporah and Moses' two sons, while Moses and Israel encamp around the Mount of God. After Zipporah died, Moses married a second time to an Ethiopian woman mentioned here in Numbers chapter 12. 2. 
Moses had two wives at the same time. We have Zipporah and we have an Ethiopian woman whom Moses married sometime before Numbers chapter 12. 3. Zipporah and the woman mentioned in Numbers 12 are one and the same. As stated, each of the above theories has proponents with some evidence to support it. In the end, whatever the answer is, what we do know is this. A. Moses is the virtual agreed-upon author for the first five books of the Bible, which would include numbers, and specifically this account. So, whatever happened is given to us in autobiographical terms. B. The only person in the Bible to take issue with what Moses did is Miriam here in this verse. Beyond her, the remainder of God's word speaks only in positive terms of Moses and his history. If there were a problem with anything Moses had done, surely those who commented on Moses would have mentioned it. Remember, Jesus himself spoke several times about Moses, as did several of the apostles, but no one has anything negative to say. C. Most importantly, when God comments on Miriam's complaint in the verses to follow, God has only complimentary things to say about Moses, while Miriam is given leprosy and then excommunicated from the camp for seven days. I believe that what happens in Numbers chapter 12 verse 1 begins in earnest in Numbers chapter 11 verse 16 where God instructs Moses to gather 70 men of the elders of Israel to assist Moses in his governing of Israel. In past, Miriam had served in the capacity of a prophetess. It may be that in Numbers chapter 12 verse 1, Miriam falls prey to the sin of jealousy when Moses failed to appoint Miriam as one of the seventy. Consequently, Miriam finds whatever she believes to be an issue with which she can find fault with Moses as political pressure to get what she wants, or simply in a sense of revenge. In the end, God reminds Miriam and anyone else throughout the remainder of chapter 12 that it is he who is leading Israel and Moses is simply his messenger. In so far as the type and the substance, the second century church father, Bishop Arrhenius, remarked on this incident in his work Against Heresies, Book 4, Chapter 20, with the following, quote, Thus too did Moses also take to wife an Ethiopian woman, whom he thus made an Israelitish one, showing by anticipation that the wild olive tree is grafted into the cultivated olive, and made to partake of its fatness. For as he who was born Christ according to the flesh had indeed to be sought after by the people in order to be slain, but was set free in Egypt, that is, among the Gentiles, to satisfy those who were there in the state of infancy, from whom also he perfected his church in that place. For Egypt was Gentile from the beginning, as was Ethiopia also. For this reason, by means of the marriage of Moses was shown forth the marriage of the word, and by means of the Ethiopian bride the church taken from among the Gentiles was made manifest, and those who do detract from, accuse, and deride it shall not be pure. 
for they shall be full of leprosy and expelled from the camp of the righteous, unquote. In Numbers chapter 13, Moses sends one representative from each of the tribes of Israel to spy out the land of Canaan and to bring back a report. The representatives spy out the land for 40 days, during which time they see the inhabitants of the land, as well as the land itself. Upon their return, all are agreed that the land of Canaan is plentiful as a land flowing with milk and honey. However, Ten of the twelve bring a report believing that the inhabitants of Canaan are too strong, too large, and their cities are too well fortified. Thus, these ten counsel that Israel should not enter the promised land. Meanwhile, Caleb and Joshua counsel that Israel should go up at once and possess the land as they are able to overcome the inhabitants. As we move to chapter 14, Israel begins to murmur against Moses and Aaron, wishing that they had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. God confronts the people of Israel over their faithlessness and initially intends to send pestilence upon them, but shows mercy at the request and intervention of Moses on their behalf. Having spared Israel, God then proclaims that Israel will wander forty years in the wilderness one year for each of the forty days the spies were in Canaan. In the end, only Moses, Caleb, Joshua, and those who trusted God will live beyond the forty years. As you may recall, Oshea, or Joshua, introduced in Numbers 12, is the same person who later became leader of Israel after Moses' death. He is the person for whom the book of Joshua in the Bible was written. The name Joshua is an English spelling for the Hebrew name Yeshua. The Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua would be Jesus. The English spelling for the word Jesus is Jesus. Thus the names Joshua and Jesus mean the same thing. The Lord is salvation. Looking at our story from a typological standpoint, it is surely very instructive to see Joshua, whose namesake is Jesus, witness to his people about the abundance and beauty of the promised land, heaven. While ten of the twelve are only able to see the obstacles, the difficulties, and the challenges, Joshua and Caleb tell us that the land is ours if God's people are willing to place their faith in God who goes before them. Worse yet, it wasn't as if Israel had just met the Lord and God was asking them to trust him in the blind. Instead, Israel had seen time and time again the great miracles performed by God before their eyes. They knew all too well from times past what fate had befallen upon others in their midst when they complained murmured, and distrusted God. Yet, despite a personal knowledge of God's mighty track record of deliverance and provision, Israel could now only see themselves as defeated. Once again, the type demonstrates the truth that only those who walk by faith in God will enter the promised land. 
Only those who hear and trust the message of Joshua, i.e. Jesus, whose name means the Lord is salvation, will enter the promised land heaven. Whether then or now, our wanderings here on earth, like that of the wilderness, are both an opportunity and a test to see whether or not those who call themselves God's people will in fact enter into his rest, wherein we follow, trust, and have faith, live and abide according to the knowledge that the Lord is salvation, or we will make ourselves idols of gold, silver, and brass, wanting, wishing, and hoping to return to the supposed comforts of Egypt. Perhaps even now there are some who are still in bondage in Egypt, serving their taskmasters, waiting, hoping for a deliverer. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19 comments, saying this, quote, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unquote. This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part 13. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The, the